Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, July the 20th, 2023. As I've mentioned in the other shows we've done today, it's O'Day. It's Oppenheimer. I'm going to the premiere in San Francisco. Uh, my guest today has actually already seen the film. Uh, we've been talking about it the last couple of days. We did a show yesterday with the contemporary historian uh, Evan Thomas, who argues... Um, who argued on the show and in his book, uh, his new book, Road to Surrender, that the dropping of the bomb was good in the sense it was justified in the sense it saved both American servicemen's life and ultimately the life of Japanese civilians. We did touch on the bombing of Tokyo, one kind of bombing or another. His book is about the three individuals, at least in his mind, that ended the Second World War, uh, he didn't include in those individuals Curtis LeMay, the American uh, bomber commander who was behind much of the bombing of uh, Tokyo. LeMay is, of course, uh, the figure behind Dr. Strangelove, or How I mm -hmm. Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, one of the great movies um, of the 1960s. Uh, and talking about loving uh, to stop worrying and loving the bomb. My guest today uh, has a book out or had a book out three years ago, the beginning of the, or the beginning or the end, how Hollywood and America learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Greg Mitchell is uh, an award-winning movie director and writer, and he's seen the film. Greg, tell us about it. Was it something that, uh, it seems like from, from your Substack notes, that you approved of it. Does it come with Greg Mitchell's approval? Which is, I think, quite tough, really. <laughs> it probably is tough. I No, I wouldn't put it down in a, a thumbs up or thumbs down. I wouldn't, I, I'd hate to do that. Uh, it comes with my admiration in a lot of ways. I've uh, Technical marvel, the acting's great, uh, the directing is great, the, the script is very good. The script is very accurate which I think counts for a lot. It's based on the book by two of my friends, Kai Bird and Marty Sherwin. Uh, and I think compared to a lot of uh, previous books on this subject and a lot of other uh, books on historical figures or very controversial historical events, I think it's, it's uh, remarkably accurate. I have some problems with what's omitted. Uh, but, um, you know, so like I said, I, I would not give my approval or disapproval. I think everyone should see it. It has a very powerful message at the end about future threats, future nuclear dangers, uh, the mess we're in. Um, so I think it's, uh, you know, it's a very powerful uh, movie, very powerful ending. And I think people will take different messages from it. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see what what uh, response it generates. Uh, you've, you've already written about it uh, on lots of fronts. you just wrote a piece in the New uh, in the Los Angeles Times, an op-ed. You're interested in the way you're also a nuclear or anti-nuclear activist, but you're interested in the way in which Hollywood represented and continues to represent this incident in American history. Right. Um, and your book, uh, the beginning uh, or the end, focuses on the the early representations. What mistakes did Hollywood make, Greg, from early on after the bomb was actually dropped? 
Well, to try to put it in a nutshell, um, about a month after the dropping of the bomb, two different studios launched, uh, you say, the first nuclear race, which was the race to make the first A-bomb movie, MGM and Paramount. Uh, Paramount actually hired Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand to write the screenplay. Uh, of old people, people, right? A lot of people don't know that she was a Hollywood scriptwriter. Uh, so they hired her, and uh, MGM, uh, Louis B. Mayer, launched their movie, saying it would be the m- most important movie they ever made. Uh, it was inspired by the atomic scientists in the Manhattan Project who uh, wanted to release a warning to the world uh, to uh, for not to go down the nuclear path so strongly, not build bigger and uh, better bombs, uh, try to control the bomb. Uh, and the first scripts, as I found looking through them, uh, did reflect those warnings and that emphasis. Then MGM turned basically turned the movie over to the White House and the, and the Pentagon. They gave General Leslie Groves, who was the head of the Manhattan Project, uh, script approval, basically. Uh, and then they basically gave the White House the same thing. And Truman himself intervened. He uh, had complaints with a scene he was in, and the MGM had to do a total costly retake. And they even, at his behest, fired the actor who played him because Truman complained that he didn't have enough military bearing. Uh, Hardly the most important uh, issue in this whole story. Uh, So anyway, uh, that story turned out to be kind of a joke. The movie was was a drama, not a documentary. And the way Oppenheimer figures, again, briefly, is that he, uh, you know, they wanted, they had to get his approval to be a major character and narrator in in the movie. So they, you know, wined and dined him and he, in his usual Oppenheimer manner, dithered and, you know, had complaints and didn't, you know, didn't give a clear signal. Finally, he signed off uh, for no fee, uh, even though he had seen the script and called it idiotic and uh, it was full of falsehoods. So this is the film. So just to be clear, um, Greg, this is the film, the beginning or the That's end, right. an MGM right. film. Also, so also I, book, right? I, I haven't seen it. I, I probably should see it. Does it represent what? What? What mistakes does it make in terms of, in your view, at least, in representing um, the dropping of the bomb? Well, you know, that's again a long, a long story. But the the, the actual, among the falsehoods are that it it shows that. Hiroshima being uh, that was Hiroshima was showered with uh, leaflets warning about the bomb was coming, you know, which didn't happen. It shows the American planes being met by Japanese opposition in the skies, which didn't happen. Uh, and uh, and for example, it doesn't even mention Nagasaki even once. Uh, it also pictures the decision to use the bomb and what I call the official narrative uh, that has held sway uh, ever since including uh, your guest, Evan Thomas, uh, which is that the only thing that could uh, end the war, the only thing that could stop the killing was the dropping of these two bombs. There was no other option. And in fact, the dropping of the two bombs did end the war and and only the dropping of the two bombs ended the war. And uh, so, um, you know, I don't agree with that. Well, how Uh, would you respond? I I, I talked to Evan about it yesterday. How would it be good actually to get you and him on the show at the same time? How would you respond to his argument that on the one hand, it saved American servicemen's lives, and on the other hand, in the long run, it, it saved the lives of, of Japanese civilians right. because more of them would have died if the war had continued? Yeah, that's been what I've, I mean, I've written about this for 40 years now, including three books and a, and a award-winning film. 
so I know a little bit about the subject. And, uh, you know, the fact is, is that, yes, if we had had to have this invasion of Japan, it would have cost countless thousands of American lives. And, of course, would have taken more Japanese lives or if we'd kept carpet bombing Japanese cities. So that's all true. But that is the narrative that has held sway since 1945. Now, the fact is, is that invasion was not planned till uh, early December, late November. Uh, so there was an invasion plan, as there had to be. But uh, would the war have lasted uh, not only not that long, but maybe even maybe only another week longer than it did or so uh, since the Russians entered the war at our insistence uh, three days after Hiroshima, as Truman had insisted. Uh, and there, again, a great number of historians who believe that the Russian entry into the war, along with uh, telling the Japanese in advance that they could keep their emperor, instead we called it unconditional surrender, demanded unconditional surrender, and then we let them keep the emperor. So there's a lot of historians who believe that the combination of the Russians coming in, the peace feelers that were already out there, uh, the, um, you know, the threat of more of, of nuclear weapons, which we certainly we could have made, uh, allowing them to keep the emperor, a combination of all those things, including the fact that everyone, every military leader, whether it's, you know, General Marshall or uh, General MacArthur or everyone all said that the Japanese were, were essentially defeated. You know, Eisenhower later said we shouldn't have used the atomic bomb. Uh, Truman's chief of staff, Admiral Leahy, said we didn't have to use the uh, atomic bomb to win. So there's a lot of evidence, which I encourage people to look into. People no, may I agree. And I asked Evan Thomas about yeah. this. I mean, he obviously has a position. It's a, com a comforting one, I guess. What historians in contrast or alongside Thomas would you suggest people read? Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot. I think you'd have to, you, if you search, you'll find uh, find a large a large number of, for example, Gara Perovitz, who was who sort of the, the father of this what they used to call it revisionist history with a, a book in the mid 1960s, uh, which he updated in 1995. So it's a very complete, uh, you know, very complete look at that. You could purchase a book that I wrote with the, the great Robert J. Lifton, also published in 1995, called Hiroshima in America, which goes into mainly the aftermath in America, how Americans dealt with having dropped the bomb. Uh, more than the decision, but there's, you know, dozens of pages on the decision uh, uh, on Truman's, uh, you know, how, how, what, what was in Truman's. Well, what about Tr Truman himself? I, I talked to uh, Evan a little bit about this. Um, he, he seemed, he, he argued in our conversation that Truman was more morally ambivalent and he uses this term moral ambiguity um, in, in, in the conversation, that he was more, morally ambiguous or ambivalent than he sometimes appears. What's your take on Truman? Ultimately, of course, as Truman famously said, the buck stopped with him. He was responsible. Um, how does Truman, in your view, come out of this? Well, I think uh, the, the book I mentioned, uh, Hiroshima in America, we do, uh, we, I think we are among the first to really get into his ambiguity after dropping the bomb. Uh, he, did have, he did show flickers of, I wouldn't call it regret, but uh, reflection on on what had happened. And of course, this is what we see with Oppenheimer in the movie a great deal. Truman was nowhere near that. He, he, uh, he certainly didn't have any doubts when he went into it. Uh, he didn't pause after Hiroshima to wait to see what the Japanese might do. He had, he let, uh, 
his advisors, Secretary of State, General Groves, kind of carried the ball on the whole thing, never really intervened. Uh, so I, I, I'm not sure what Evan is really talking about in terms of the uh, wide, you know, any kind of wide sense of Truman's ambiguity or, you know, second thoughts about it. It's interesting. Um, a few months ago, I had a historian of ideas, Benjamin Lipscomb, on the show. Uh, he wrote an interesting book about four groundbreaking British philosophers from Oxford, Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley and Iris Murdoch. Um, and uh, Elizabeth Anscombe famously argued that um, Truman shouldn't have been granted an honorary degree from Oxford University in 1950 because of his association with the bomb. In, in your view, do you think Truman's decision to drop the bomb morally tainted him? Um, boy, I, I hate to get into moral arguments. I, I certainly tainted him. Well, you are, for better or worse, this is a moral argument. Well, it's a moral argument. Yeah, I, I, I suppose it's it's a human argument. It's uh, some might say it's a military argument. Practical. Uh, it cost cost a great number of lives that uh, necessary didn't necessarily need need to be lost. But the, I think that the larger question that you have to get to is okay. Let's say. Let's say you think it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a toss up or it's a lot of gray area. Should we have dropped the bomb or not? The fact is we did drop it. And what is the message since then? How did that dropping the bomb, again, putting the Japanese aside and, and the surrender and everything else, what did that signal for the next 78 years? Did that uh, embolden the, the Soviets and others to get the bomb? Did that speed and, and help cause the arms race? Uh, did it set us on a path, which it did, of uh, decades of, of uh, national security secrecy, uh, years of uh, uh, bomb tests that uh, damaged soldiers and downwinders and, and all of us? I grew up in the 50s. I'm sure I got a, a big dose of fallout from all those tests uh, in, in my milk, as it was proven. Um, decades of uh, you know medical experiments on people. We just went down this nuclear path. Uh, with the radiation dangers, with the arms race cost for decades. And, you know, finally, we set a precedent for the use of the bomb. Now, it's, you might say, well, it hasn't been used since, but we now, we now know of the many close calls. And we know that even um, Mr. Putin in recent months loves to point out that when we lecture him about, you know, not going nuclear, saying, well, you're the only country that has used the bomb and you used it twice, and where do you get off lecturing me? So, I mean, that's the problem. We have set an ex two exceptions. You know, we claim, and uh, great journalists and historians will say, well, uh, you know, whatever happened then, we must never use the bomb again. Which, in but, fairness, is what Evan Thomas says. Yeah, okay, he says we never use the bomb again, but he makes two exceptions. So what is that? Well, I guess exceptions can be made. You know, it, it's a terrible position to, to say we must never use them again and say, well, we made two exceptions then. Well, we can easily imagine other exceptions that can be made now. And in fact, the final point is the U.S. still has a f official first use policy, first strike policy, which means the president is, uh, is allowed or enabled to strike first with nuclear weapons in response to any crisis or any conventional uh, attack from a foe. We can go first with nuclear weapons. And, and we've done it before. So to, to, to say that, well, we must never use them again. Well, why do we have thousands of them? Why do we have a first use policy? Uh, 
you know, it's kind of hypocritical to say, well, we made those two exceptions then, but that that'll never that's never had any impact since, you know, no, no. And, one... and you've written a great deal about this, Greg, uh, in addition to the, the couple of books we've talked about, you um, you uh, you have another book, Atomic Cover Up to two U.S. soldiers, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the greatest movie never made. Why, in your view, is Hollywood's representation of this so important? Do you think it has an impact or had an impact in the way in which Americans thought about this decision to drop the bombs? Uh, well, not nearly as much as uh, mass media and journalists and newspaper pundits and so on forth and, his, and historians, you know, most of the historians, especially early on. Um, you know, I don't want to give too much uh, credence to the influence of Hollywood on this issue or maybe on any issue. I'm not sure. But, you know, as my book shows, the very first movie, the beginning or the end was basically, what do you say, censored, revised by the Pentagon and the White House. Okay, 1946. Uh, the next movie that uh, was made about this was seven years later, also from MGM, focused on uh, the pilot who dropped the bomb, Paul Tibbetts, who, who I once interviewed. It uh, also endorsed down the line the Hiroshima narrative. There wasn't another movie made then for, uh, I think, 35, 36 years called Fat Man and Little Boy. And then there wasn't another movie until Christopher Nolan's uh, uh, right now. So there's only four movies. This is what I write about in my LA Times uh, op-ed today that you mentioned, four movies. Uh, and even the Christopher Nolan movie um, does not spend a lot of time about the the actual dropping of the bomb. The, nothing on, it shows nothing what happened on the ground whatsoever. And it doesn't really confront the this official narrative of well we had to do it you know you you see Oppenheimer troubled seemingly with some regrets you don't but you don't quite know why um, you, you know it, it's kind of a, a, one of the main points of the movie is okay Oppenheimer seems to be haunted okay but you don't really know why and you don't really you don't see what happened in Japan and uh, so I think that's one of the weaknesses of uh, of the film you can't really say the movie takes head on the decision to use the bomb at, at all. So that's, you know, goes back again to this first movie, the beginning or the end in 1946. And, um, you know, the Nolan movie is much, much, much better. I don't want to give people the, uh, you know, the idea that it's, uh, it's not a much, much better movie, but uh, still uh, I would have hoped for a little more there. Would you have made, if you were making this film, if you had the, tens, probably hundreds of millions of dollars that Nolan had to make the film. Only a hundred million. I think only yeah. Well, it's still a lot. Uh, uh, would you have made Oppenheimer the central figure? Would you have called it Oppenheimer? Well, I guess if I was going to make a, a biopic of Oppenheimer, I'd probably call it Oppenheimer. I'm not sure. But I, I would have, uh, I would I, again, I would have shown a number of diff different things that he didn't. It's a three-hour movie. So what was uh, missing then to, to come back? I mean, you liked the film. You said it was brilliantly directed. You liked the, especially the bit with Oppenheimer in army uniform. So you're an admirer <laughs> of Nolan broadly, but what was missing? Well, there's a number of things which I've written about at my Substack blog. If you want to check it out, it's called Oppenheimer 2023. Pretty easy to find. It's a daily blog on all things Oppenheimer. You know, the man, the movie. Yeah, the yeah, it's called Oppenheimer from Hiroshima to Hollywood. The man, right, the bomb, go. and the movie. There you go. Uh, uh, but so I, I, even before the, the premiere, I was posting uh, some of my reactions. And, and among the things that are missing 
are, you know, number one, I mentioned not showing any effects of, on people on the ground. Uh, number two, almost ignoring their whole radiation issue. We don't see, for example, the Trinity test, which is certainly one of the main focus of the, of the movie. Uh, filmmakers love to focus on Trinity because no one died there, at least not right away. Uh, and, um, but you don't even, you would never know that there was a radioactive cloud that drifted, uh, at, that people near living nearby and downwind were never warned. They were, and then they were lied to, uh, and this again, set the pattern for these, uh, really decades of American, uh, tests. Uh, and it, it's kind of shocking. The movie didn't, uh, it may, almost hardly mentioned radiation at all in any form, uh, it also admits, uh, I mean, it admits, as I mentioned, this this question of uh, uh, the decision to use the bomb. It's presented pretty much as the official narrative has it. There's a, a big scene which happened in real life. And again, I applaud the uh, main, you know, the major accu the accuracy of the movie. You know, uh, I know I know the original mater original material. Um, and so there was a key meeting uh, about uh, two months before the use of the bomb where the top advisors to Truman met and, uh, you know, kicked around very briefly, uh, should we really use it? And the idea came up of use, having a demonstration shot uh, and Oppenheimer himself shot it down, uh, uh, which you know, if you want to read between the lines or between the pixels or whatever on the movie, uh, maybe that's the source of his regret. I'm still not sure. But well, of course, Oppenheimer was later involved in a huge debate argument about developing the H-bomb with Edward Teller. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a complicated narrative. You've, um, uh, and I mean that complicated, not just an excuse to avoid it. Um, you, you, you've been involved with uh, Nuclear Times, a magazine devoted to nuclear disarmament. You were a former editor between 1982 and 1986. So you've been in around this issue for many years, Greg. What do you think the broader culture, leaving aside Hollywood, what doesn't it address in terms of nuclear weapons? What have we missed broadly in America? Well, what have we missed? Uh, well, what doesn't, you know, for people who read their newspapers and watch television, what, what don't they know that you think they should know about nuclear weapons? Well, one thing I mentioned was, uh, of course, the first use policy. Most people don't even know we have a first strike policy. It's a rather important thing. Um, you know, the the problem with the nuclear issue is that it, it kind of ebbs and ebbs and flows. You know, we have periods where it gets a great deal of attention and then people almost forget about it. So um, and in those times, people kind of forget about or are not quite uh, aware of uh, uh, possible dangers of radiation, a terrorist attack. I mean, there's there's whole litany of of threats that people are not not that aware of. You know, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which is a pretty sober publication going back 75 years, uh, has this doomsday clock and they kind of move the hand closer or farther from midnight. And uh, it probably surprised a lot of people last year when they moved it to the closest it's ever been to midnight. And they'd say, well, gee, I don't feel that much uh, daily nuclear danger. But the fact is, is that uh, more there are more nuclear powers now uh, there are more unstable leaders. There's more access that terrorists uh, could have to make a bomb. Uh, there's, of course, the hot war in Ukraine. Uh, and we and we still have this first use policy, which no one's doing anything about. Well, so do you explain what first use policy means? I, I know you mentioned that earlier, but what exactly does it mean? 
Yeah, I think I, I explained it earlier. It's just the U.S. president has has the uh, it's a policy that enables them to order a nuclear strike anytime we face a serious crisis or a, conven- a conventional attack, you know, from abroad, from someone else, from an enemy. It doesn't have to be a nuclear attack. So at any time, uh, a president. Now, of course, I think people were more afraid when Trump was in there, but. It's really any president has this power. And, uh, you know, whether it will ever happen, you know, we don't know. But, um, you know, we had a first strike in 1945 against uh, an, a, very, a very evil enemy uh, that could not strike back and did not have nuclear weapons. Um, so we do have a precedent for it. And I think that's what haunts some people. It, it's, it's why I've remained interested and I've written about this so long. But what drives me is is more or less this first use policy, I suppose, because I still feel the media commentators uh, uh, and some historians just continually, it's like, uh, you know, they embrace these exceptions that have been made as if there's no impact on public opinion. Uh, It's not in the air, you know, that we've, okay, we used it twice in the middle of cities. We deliberately killed as many people as we could. We killed probably 180,000 civilians, mainly women and children. You know, we deliberately did it. We targeted that. Uh, you know, we put out the publicity that this was a military base, you know, the great Hiroshima military base. But we hit the center of the city. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, so people, if people know that, they don't want to think about it. And I can understand that. But it keeps me motivated. All right. But Greg, some people might say, well, this first use policy is really moot because, uh, an American president would never cho- choose to use a nuclear weapon against the Russians or the Chinese um, because they have weapons of their own. All right. Well, that that's mutual assured destruction, which some people say, you know, prevented this use in the uh, 60s and 70s and so forth. Um, and and certainly that's, you know, that that might discourage someone else. But you have to make the threat. I mean, the threat has to be real that you might might use it. And then, of course, there are other we've been in a war with Iraq. We've been in, in kind of a, a cold war with Iran uh, that could could turn hot anytime. Uh, North Korea. I mean, there's a number of places around around the globe that we might not take too seriously that they are really going to hit us back that badly. So certainly the Middle East is a is a tough you know, is a tough spot. Um, so I, I, I'm not uh, I understand mutually assured destruction, uh, what it means, what it has meant. Uh, the promise it holds, if if you will, but boy, one one slip up, uh, and that's the end of the world. Greg, um, not to leave you with that, not to leave you with that thought, but yeah, well, the, very the, the Christopher Nolan movie. The Christ- no, I, I hope Christopher if they're going to do it, at least wait until five this afternoon Pacific time, so I get to see the movie. Okay. Um, is there a broader theme here, also, Greg, in your work and your analysis that this inaugurated the dropping of the bomb, the cult of shall we say, of a technological advancement. Christopher Nolan, is, who directed the movie, has made a number of comments on the role of AI now and suggested, whilst he isn't maybe immediately worried about AI, he believes that the, his movie carries, reminds the technologists of Silicon Valley about their responsibilities. Um, was there a, 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 shall we say, a cult of technology unleashed by the dropping of the bomb, which we're beginning to see darker and darker features of, particularly in digital technology and AI. 
and perhaps uh, synthetic biology. We had a show on that yesterday, too. Yeah, I was actually at that attended that panel where Nolan made his AI statements that got a lot of publicity around the around the world, and he he was actually very strong on it. Very strong worries about AI. He called the he said a lot of people in Silicon Valley are, are having their Oppenheimer moment, as he dubbed it. Uh, so he is he is pretty worried about it. But uh, I think the bomb did. Uh, besides, oh, you want to say unleashing technology more? It. it created uh, much more of a sense of, okay, leave it to us and, and leave secrecy to us and don't complain about secrecy and don't complain about secret programs. It's okay, you know, just leave it to us. So I, it, it, I mean, there have been whole books written about this, about the, the creation of the national security state, uh, all the bad things that have come from this gigantic and secret, uh, uh, what they call national security state or regime. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, that that's a lot to tackle, but uh, like I said, I, the the dropping of the bomb had so much ripple effect, so much of an aftermath that uh, you really have to look at it beyond even the effect it had, you know, in the near term in 1945. I know, um, and finally here, you, you, another critique you have of the film, or historically of Hollywood's representation of the bomb is it's always suggested that it was some sort of manifestation of democracy, of ordinary people, when the reverse was actually true. Why, in your view, is the bomb and American use of the bomb, why is it in some ways symbolically a threat, an undermining, a negation of democracy, Greg? Well, of course, it puts, it puts world-ending power in the hands of a handful of people, which is, uh, you know, a little unusual. Um, and uh, but, you know, the, the movie I write about the beginning or the end in 1946 ends with the, the, there's again, just briefly the, in the movie, there's one ethical scientist and he dies in an accident and he comes back and uh, suddenly his views, even though he's been the first victim of radiation, uh, comes back and appears as a ghost and talks to his widow and tells her that the future of nuclear is actually very bright and I was worrying and now I know to relax. And I think you, we are, you're going to have the most wonderful future you can imagine due to creation of uh, this bomb and nuclear technology, even though he was the first victim uh, in the movie of, uh, you know, of bomb radiation. So um, I think that's the message that they really wanted to put out was let, it's, this is going to turn out to be a great thing and, you know, leave it to us. <laughs> 